0: Hi, and welcome to the Joe Rogan Experience. I'm just kidding. Welcome to Shireside Chats, a new podcast from Fandom Forward featuring conversations with activists, leaders, and writers about the pop culture that makes them who they are today. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and unlike Joe Rogan, I will never make you eat bugs. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder that this is an independently produced podcast created to support our fan activist work. Um, you can go ahead and support Fandom Forward by visiting fandomforward.org slash donate or by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash fandomforward, where we will have very special bonus content coming to you soon, I promise. On this very second episode of Shireside Chats, we'll be talking about all things Marvel with Alan Jenkins and Gon Galan, an unlikely duo who used their superpowers to create One Six, a comic book series that answers a very important question— What would have happened to the U.S. if the fascists had won on January 6th? Alan Jenkins is a writer, Harvard law professor, and human rights advocate. He teaches courses on racial justice, strategic communications, and Supreme Court jurisprudence, and is a frequent commentator in broadcast and print media. Jenkins' previous positions include president and co-founder of the Social Justice Communication Lab, The Opportunity Agenda, director of human rights at the Ford Foundation— assistant to the Solicitor General at the U.S. Department of Justice, and assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Gon Golan is an activist, illustrator, and New York Times bestselling author who has been working for more than three decades as a grassroots organizer within social movements for racial and economic justice. He is the co-author of the bestselling children's book parodies Good Night, Bush and Good Night, Trump, and the critically acclaimed graphic novel The Adventures of Unemployed Man which played a role in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Gon was also a lead designer of the People's Climate March and a co-founder of the Climate Clock. This episode of Shireside Chats is spoiler-free and appropriate for all ages, so grab your teacup and get ready to get cozy. On with the show. Alan and Gon, welcome to Shireside Chats, the coziest activism podcast on the internet where we talk about our work, but we also get nostalgic for our favorite fandoms. What are you drinking today?
1: Thanks so much for having us on. I'm drinking uh, Crystal Geyser, which, yeah, I'm not really sure what it is, but uh, it's liquid. (laughs)
0: Okay. Is that a fancy water?
1: (laughs) I hope so. Let's hope it's water.
2: (laughs) Speaking of fancy water, I'm drinking tap water out of a goblet. So there you go. (laughs) That that.
0: That is so funny. On the first episode of Shireside Chats... I set it to the easiest level possible. I brought in an old friend of mine to talk about my favorite fandom, which happens to be one of her favorite fandoms. This week, I'm completely switching it up. I'm bringing new friends on who I don't know that well to talk about a fandom that I have a little bit of cursory knowledge about, but I'm not like a super fan. Are you ready to get cozy? Do
1: I am know. so ready. So ready to get cozy. Yeah. Cozier by the second.
0: What's the fandom that you want to talk about today?
2: I think for both of us, it really comes out of a long history of loving comics, really understanding how powerful that medium can be. And in particular, a lot of favorite comics uh, in the Marvel universe that that really influenced us as kids and, uh, we must admit, as adults.
0: So the two of you have been producing this comic series called One Six about The January 6th insurrection in 2021. It is speculative fiction about what would have happened if the insurrection had been successful. Tell me about this project.
1: So I found myself in the weeks and months after the January 6th insurrection, kind of waking up at 3 a.m. in a cold sweat, worrying about our democracy, and worrying about the fact that the country didn't seem to be worrying about it. In other words, that there was this kind of collective, oh, we dodged a bullet and time to move on, when it was really quite evident to me that the threats still existed, that the rise of white supremacy and and bigotry and anti-Semitism and racism that drove the insurrection were very much still with us, that the threats to democracy were there. And it seemed to me, as a comic book fan and geek, that a graphic novel or a comic book series would be a great way to speak to a broad audience, to tell the story of what could have happened if the insurrection had been successful, and importantly, kind of a warning about what could have happened. And as as Gon said, a lot of inspiration from the comic book genre or storytelling vehicle about alternate realities, but also the kind of proud history of speculative fiction Orwell's 1984 or uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower or, you know, A Handmaid's Tale from Margaret Atwood, really a tradition of compelling, hopefully really entertaining fiction that is also about the, the threats that we face today.
0: Now, you come from very different professional backgrounds Alan, I know that you're a Harvard Law professor, and gone, you're a writer and an organizer, but both of you are interested in using different forms of media to convey concepts related to civil rights and organizing, whether it's documentary film or academic publishing or illustration. How did you two meet and decide to work together?
1: Yeah, well, I
2: think what really unites us is just, you know, a shared sense of values. And we, we've we brought our very different skill sets together to do this, but um, we've been in each other's orbit for quite some time. Alan ran an organization for many years that was just uh, one of the leading sort of social justice messaging organizations in the country and, and was bringing together artists because he and the organization realized the value that artists and culture makers had in moving our national conversation. And I was invited to one of these retreats and Alan spoke there. I was very impressed. And, you know, somehow on the, on the side, we sort of threw down some clues about our, our mutual interest in comic books. And, um, eventually we were bumping into each other at comic cons and we realized there was some really fun stuff that we could do together that brought together
1: both our values, but also these, these different sets that we had. Gunn and I worked together while I was running the Opportunity Agenda. He co-authored and illustrated a social justice superhero comic book that we did, uh, Helvetica Bold, which was wildly popular, also created by my colleague Betsy Richards at the time. And, uh, you know, in the social justice world, you produce a report. And, you know, you're lucky if several thousand or maybe 10,000 people pick it up. We produced a live action video around Helvetica Bold starring an amazing actress, uh, Dragonfly, who played Helvetica and got 1 million views. So, you know, that was just one signal, if I needed any, that pop culture, and in the case of Helvetica, very much Marvel-inspired pop culture was a great way to get out a social justice message. And also made clear to me that Gon is a creative genius and strategist who I wanted to find ways to work with. So when this idea came to me about a graphic novel, the premise of which is what if the insurrection had been successful, you know, Gon was the first person who I thought of to collaborate with.
0: I think in most of the interviews you've been doing for this press tour, the question that everyone is asking is, why the graphic novel? Why is this the best medium to tell this story? And I actually think that the answer is pretty self-evident. It's clear that you're both Marvel geeks, you're both comic book geeks, and there's absolutely an appetite for this sort of content. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about the comics that inspired you when you were growing up that shaped you into the people you are today gone you told me that you didn't grow up with television but you loved marvel comics because they had been passed down to you from your older siblings how did you become a fan
2: i mean i wasn't exposed to a lot of pop culture directly and this was in the 80s you know this is what, when tv was king and everything that kids talked about on the playground was coming from pop culture I got a very curated version of that, of things that were sort of passed to me by, as you said, my older brother or friends, but it was it was really good stuff. And the thing, I remember this very distinctly, one story that really hit me strongly, for those of you who still remember this one, was the Uncanny X-Men had a series called Days of Future Past, which I think they made into a movie. Honestly, if I watched the movie, I don't even remember it because I don't think it compared at all to this original storyline of the X-Men that was just so powerful. And in thinking back on this one six project, I started to realize that some of the seeds were maybe planted back when I was a second or third grader about this idea of an alternate reality. It was the first time I'd encountered that sort of dystopian alternate reality storyline. And it had it all for me. You know, it was it was gritty, it had a bit of science fiction, but there was also a lot of politics in it, which was surprising, I think, for a lot of mainstream superhero comics at the time. And it was speaking directly to what was happening at that moment in history. You know, this was during the period of Reaganomics. There was, the United States was funding covert wars in Central America that were absolutely terrible. There was a rise of the the extreme religious right with an anti-LGBTQ agenda. And so somehow the X-Men were able to bring a lot of these themes into this comic. Sure, it had robots, alternate timelines, transportation, psychic forces, and all these things, but it was really about how marginalized communities must band together and survive against some really powerful forces. And that just struck me very deeply And I think it was a a profound moment in comics, um, but also taught me a lot about how the comics medium and even these sort of pop culture genres could really tell serious stories while still being entertaining.
0: My husband, Brian, who produces this podcast, is a much bigger comic nerd than I am and his feedback for me when I was researching Marvel for this episode was, you know, at any given time there are thirty titles trying to do thirty, forty different things in terms of tone and and the ebb and flow of, of the storytelling and what lessons they're trying to impart to fans. Gone, you mentioned a very particular storyline. Alan, I'm wondering if there was a particular artist or storyline or or superhero series that stuck out to you when you were growing up with Marvel?
1: My first comic book actually was Marvel premiere number one, which was the origin story of Adam Warlock, who I think is making his appearance in the MCU soon. But that was actually a retelling of the Adam and Eve story in a futuristic alternate universe. And, you know, I picked that up, I think, at age 10, and I was hooked. But unlike Gone, I was inundated with pop culture, including television, growing up, including the original Spider-Man animated show from the 60s I was around from the tail end of that and Super Friends and the Incredible Hulk television show, which was very much kind of an outsider social justice oriented show, even though it was very much under the surface and Wonder Woman with Linda Carter. So, you know, I was all up in it. I would say that most influential for me, especially from the Marvel Universe, were Daredevil, a blind attorney, uh, spoiler alert, who was also a superhero, Submariner, who, you know, we just saw in the latest Black Panther movie, Wakanda Forever, recast as an indigenous person from Latin America who, although was not a person of color in the comic books, was always both helping humanity and critiquing the surface world, critiquing the the powers that be, and, and also Black Panther. So, you know, I think all of those were influential for me. I also inherited my comic books and love of comic books from my older brother. And those were, you know, uh, comics that he was into as well.
0: Did either of you feel that your older brothers were imparting something to you about the way the world works through this? Or was it just a, these are cool. Here you go. (laughs) Knock yourself out.
1: You know, in, in my case, I don't think my older brother was thinking about the uh, the relationship of Submariner to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, for example, or the X-Men, for, for that matter. But he was, you know, he's much older than I am. He was part of the counterculture in a cultural way. And I think, you know, he often schooled me, hey, don't pick up DC, Marvel's cool. And in that era, Marvel was really breaking ground in telling stories about heroes that were underdogs, about blurring the lines between good and evil that DC had not really even explored at, at that point. And so he definitely was sending me the message that at that time, these were more sophisticated stories, more interesting, more grown up. And those are the ones that I should be reading.
0: I wanted to ask you about specific connections between Marvel storylines and your lived experience, your heritage, your identity is gone. You told me that there were Holocaust survivors in your family and X-Men really resonated with you because of that.
2: Yeah, you know, I came from a fairly political family. Uh, My parents were actually, when they came to the U.S., got a job working as the caretakers of a Unitarian church which was a very progressive community at that time, there were refugees coming from Central America, fleeing U.S. funded wars, staying in the church. The church was very active in the anti-nuclear movement. And also personally, you know, my grandmother was the only survivor in her family. And so these were things that I was seeing as a child and really trying to wrap my mind around that you know, you didn't see a whole lot of that represented out there in in the culture. And so when I found something like this X-Men story that was touching on all of these themes, you know, like what it means to try and survive genocide, what does the threat of nuclear annihilation looming in the background feel like? And what does it mean to to band together with other outsiders in order to take care of each other and and hopefully change the tide of history? Like that felt both like it was speaking to many things I was feeling but not seeing reflected elsewhere in the culture, but also, you know, these are heroic stories. Despite the dystopian tone of a lot of it, there is a feeling of hope that there's something that we can do about all of this. And so there's there's something about it, I think that's actually deeply optimistic around a lot of these darker stories. That hit me very strongly because as I think as a child, I was feeling all of that, And comic books in the world of fantasy, science fiction, gave me a place to explore, I think, a lot of reckon with a lot of my fears in a safer way that that was very empowering. So I could come back to reality with a sort of stronger sense of what we could do to change it. And so um, it was a really great place for me to have a lot of my escapism because I think it was a bit of a mirror, a boomerang effect. It takes you to another world so that you can see your own world more clearly and maybe with a, a little more confidence. Yeah, it, uh, those comics really brought that all together for me.
0: To me, that's what civic imagination is all about. Alan, does that resonate with you at all?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that on the one hand, the fandom is empowering because I, I'm actually a part of comic book fandom and I'm a gardener and I do martial arts And all of those things have their own fandom and geekdom, right? So kind of walking into a comic book store or a tropical fish store, I keep fish at home or going to the, you know, our Kung Fu, it's, we're all geeky. And in addition, just the joy, right. Of of being with other people who understand and love the thing that you love. And to God's point In this context of comic books, it can be super empowering. And, you know, there's a long tradition of the relationship of comic books and particularly Marvel comic books, but also others and social change. So Superman in his first issue, Action Comics number one, is actually freeing someone from death row who was wrongly accused and taking on corrupt politicians. Captain America and his first issue is socking Hitler in the Jaws. It's nine months before the U.S. entered World War II. Wonder Woman is, uh, in many instances, overturning the patriarchy. And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in consuming this stuff, first, I would say subliminally, when I was a little kid, And then very explicitly over time, both the sense of empowerment and community and the possibility for positive change were were baked in for me.
0: You have to be the most interesting professor at Harvard Law School. I'm sorry to anyone who teaches at Harvard Law who's listening to this, but Alan, he gardens, he reads comics, he collects fish, and he's a professor. Try to top that.
1: Well, one of my colleagues has written about Star Wars and the Constitution. So he's giving me a run for my money, no doubt. That's
0: so cool. I got to get him on the pod. So coming back to One Sixth and its character arcs, are any of these characters inspired by the Marvel arcs you read when you were growing up in some way?
2: You know, it's interesting because we're trying to tell a story that is very much based on the reality of what happened on January 6th. And we are going through great lengths in the storytelling to really ground it in the known facts about what happened. There's been a concerted attempt to try and gaslight the entire country and saying, you know, this was not actually insurrection. It was just tourists or it was Antifa or all these other things, and really get us to look away from the reality of what happened. So that's been our starting point to tell, to retell the facts of what happened on January 6th as a launching point into this speculative alternative reality where, yes, it is meant to be a heroic story. And I think we've we've drawn on some of the classic things that you'll see in comics and superhero comics, but also with the realistic grounding to them. And the story, I don't want to give too much away, but sort of opens up with one of our characters trying to enact kind of a, a, a classic superhero rooftop mission. But what you discover very quickly is that you know, this isn't some super soldier. She's, she's a mom. She has kids. This is hard for her to do physically. And so we're trying to, to really show what it means to aspire to heroism in a very difficult moment, but still be real human beings. So you'll see moments of Catwoman or Daredevil in, in something like that, but also feel like this is a real person who's trying to figure out how to be a hero in a very difficult moment in history.
1: Yeah, I would add that I think readers are going to see some parallels to some Marvel characters, for example, but they're really parallels to real life and in some instances movement dynamics. So that same character who's on the rooftop, near Rivera, is uh, angry and hurt because of terrible things that have happened as a result of the insurrection. You're going to see some Wolverine in her. But of course, you know, Stan Lee was drawing from the Black Power movement that was going on at at that time when he was creating these characters. When he created Magneto and Professor X, he was thinking in some ways about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And so we also... Are drawing from that tradition but also you know we're both part of social movements and we know that those elements are there the pacifists the planners and strategists the people who are wedded to restoring the status quo versus the people who really want to rebuild our society in a better image that that yields more closely to our values and so yeah there are definitely some comic book parallels there and in each instance i think they also draw from reality
0: yeah, I think what's interesting about this series is that it mirrors this podcast actually a little bit in terms of the intention. I see that one audience could be comic book geeks who are familiar with the tropes of Marvel and DC and those different series. But on the other hand, it's a way of showing the people who work in the movement, you know, working with activists, how you connect fandom and how you connect storytelling and pop culture to movement building and what we can learn from the world's most beloved stories.
2: I think there's a a very deep connection between the stories that we tell and retell and the action we take out in the world. Narrative is really powerful. And culture as the medium for these narratives is one of the primary ways in which we make big decisions about, you know, where we want to head as a society. It is no accident that the far right is engaged in a culture war because they realized how culture has been leading this conversation for so long about how the American experiment can really deliver on its highest aspirations. And they want to turn back the clock on a lot of this stuff. And so they have taken culture very seriously, I think, since the 1960s in particular, when there was a a major cultural transition And we see so many of these comics inspired by what was happening within social movements, the civil rights movements, the black power movement, the feminist movement that found its way into comics. There's a real pushback on the cultural front against these stories that seek to create a more inclusive and just and humane society. The storytelling is is really important. It's really key. And these are the places that we find not only our inner strength as people to, to engage in such a sort of an epic struggle for social change, but also about collectively where we want to go. And I think we want to raise some of those questions in 1-6 about what is the America we want to build? Reckon very truthfully with where we are right now and the very dangerous, precarious moment that we're facing, but also think a bit aspirationally about recommitting ourselves to what I would say are the the greatest values that America at times has embodied. And we're seeking to, to really create more of the lived reality that people get to experience every day.
0: Amazing. So now I want to bring in everyone's favorite factor, corporations. We love them. I'm just kidding. Now, Alan, when we met, we talked about Disney shareholder activism and Disney's acquisition of Marvel. You said that you had been a Marvel shareholder and then you became a Disney shareholder because of their acquisition of Marvel. I'd love to chat about how Marvel has changed both for you as fans and for the fandom more broadly after these superhero stories went mainstream because of that acquisition.
1: Well, one thing I can tell you, so I've been to one Disney shareholder meeting, and uh, it's quite a spectacle and also a huge opportunity for progressive activism, which uh, you know was was pursued with vigor unsuccessfully so far, but with vigor. I think that shareholder activism is quite important. But to get back to your question, Sabrina, I think that for all of us geeks, When the thing that you're passionate and knowledgeable about goes mainstream, you know, you have mixed emotions. So on the one hand, it's fantastic. If anybody had told 16-year-old me, you know, there would be so many Marvel movies that I wouldn't have time to see them all. I would not have believed it and would have lost my mind. And for the most part, I think Disney slash Marvel has done a really good job, much better job than I would have predicted in bringing these stories and characters to life but on the other hand you know now everybody thinks they know marvel and you know you have to kind of fight your geek response which is well actually in issue number 26 of daredevil what happened was because you know what nobody wants to hear that so you know it's it's a mixed bag but i think in terms of fandom and social change it's fantastic Because think about, you know, Black Panther, let's just take that as an example, and how many kids and people around the world who would never have picked up a Black Panther comic book, or even had the opportunity to do so, have seen Black Panther, the movie, its vision of Afrofuturism, there is a, a movement, Wakanda the Vote, which was registering people to vote while they were waiting online to see the first Black Panther movie. And, you know, I think they have uh, rejuvenated that with Wakanda forever. So, you know, all in all, it's a good thing. And uh, I definitely miss a bit the time when comic books and Marvel felt like they were only for me.
0: I totally get that. I feel the same way about Duran Duran, that's one of my top tier fandoms, but since they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they've had this resurgence and now tickets to see them are like, I don't know, $500. So I I know that feeling. I think Black Panther is such an interesting example to talk about, particularly now as we head into awards season, because... There's this idea that superhero movies do not win Academy Awards, but the first, Black Panther, went on to win three and was nominated for many more. And the second movie has received five nominations this week. Most notably, Angela Bassett is nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And I think a lot of people think it's pretty wild that someone could win one of the major Oscars for a superhero film. And even outside of Marvel... The big frontrunner this year, Everything Everywhere All at Once, is a genre bender, but it's mostly actually a sci-fi film, and it's about intergenerational trauma in Asian American families. And I just, I find that so fascinating that this year, sci-fi and Marvel and really fan-ish content or franchises that lend themselves to developing fandoms are, are the prestige hits this year.
2: I think it speaks to how much extraordinary talent is out there and the kinds of stories that we haven't heard yet and are just so exciting to anyone who is a fan or consumer of pop culture. It's just been extraordinary and I think it it just it it speaks to how structural racism and other forms of bigotry that have limited the ability of many creators to to show us their work how that has limited the imagination of all of us. And that's, I think, something for an additional reason for fans of pop culture to really fight against all this institutional racism and biases that have prevented women creators and creators of color from being able to bring their work out into the world because there's so much good stuff there. And this, I think, what we're seeing is just the the leading edge of that, you know, in the Oscars and other, other mainstream areas. And we're also seeing a lot of pushback from that. You're seeing the right is freaking out, calling everything woke, simply because it's not stories about white men. And so I think it's actually a very exciting time in which we're seeing a a real sea change in culture and representation
1: that is really great for pop culture. Mm -hmm. Just to add on that and to crawl a little bit farther down the fandom geek hole, I, I have been a fan of Michelle Yeoh you know, decades since she was, you know, a martial arts film star and actually was the star of a great Kung Fu, Hong Kong Kung Fu movie called Wing Chun. She's been so good for so long. She's able to do so many things well. And to see her now being recognized at age, I think she's 60 now, but was 59 when she made Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is also a fantastic film. And, you know, some people will remember during the Golden Globe ceremony when they tried to play her off and she said, shut up. And I think she also said, I can beat you up if I have to, which is definitely true. So important in terms of further breaking stereotypes. So many Asian American women have remarked about how powerful that moment was, that she was not going to allow them to silence her and that she was going to own her greatness in that moment. And it's, it's crucial. It's crucial that finally the door is open a crack for some new experiences and stories and, and identities to be seen.
0: Right on. I mean, I can personally speak to that because my husband and I are both half Asian. I'm half South Asian and he's half Chinese. And his mother's from China. And the character of Evelyn that Michelle Yeoh plays in Everything Everywhere All at Once, she really reminds me a lot of my mother in law and some of the themes of. The film felt so familiar and they really resonated with a lot of young Asian American kids who were first generation immigrants. But I wanted to go back to Black Panther for a second because Alan, you wrote this amazing op-ed when the first movie came out for the Hollywood Reporter about what it means for black men to see positive narratives about themselves. And you specifically wrote about that in the context of your brother's experience teaching English in Taiwan. Can you talk a little bit more about that and and how Black Panther 2 relates to that.
1: Yeah, well, my my brother taught for years in Taiwan and then for even more years in uh, Beijing and Shanghai and uh, was a very successful teacher and forged many positive relationships. But each time he would address a new class, especially in Taiwan, students were afraid of him. This is 20 years ago. And so although they had, most of them, no actual experience with Black people, they were afraid of my brother because of his identity. And it took a while to figure out that it was because they were consuming American media and that media painted us as Black men almost universally as threats, as violent, as problems, far out of proportion to any representation of, of our group in those categories and with almost no representation as problem solvers, as dads, which I am, as workers, or even as users of technology. When I was at the Opportunity Agenda, this is about 10 years ago, we did a more formal set of research on depictions of Black men and boys in all types of media. And it confirmed those exactly those results, but in a way that is measurable, that there's longstanding pattern, which we are only slightly starting to break out of now and Black Panther, the first film and, and uh, the second film in different ways really was a standout exception to that in in ways that were critical in Black men and and young people who were leaders, who were virtuous, who were users of technology, and also the notion of what would the African nations have looked like if they were free of the history of slavery and colonialism and imperialism. We have no real-life examples of that, but we have Wakanda. And it allows us to think and dream about that potential reality. So the first Black Panther film, in, in a lot of ways, was a game changer. And that's just one of them.
0: Incredible. As Marvel stories and superheroes become more mainstream, do you think that the comics themselves have become more effective over time within movement building? And do you think your favorite Marvel characters still play a role in that work?
1: That's a great question. I'm not sure what I think about that. I mean, I think that comics have become much more of a battleground. As Gon mentioned, there's a lot of backlash against more diverse characters and creators in the comic books. There is the rise of of alt-right comic books and comic book heroes. There's Comicsgate. Uh, You know, there's just been a lot of pushback. I don't think that that is necessarily an inherently bad thing. I think we should be talking about this stuff. It's also the case that, as I mentioned, the role of social justice in comic books is not new and we shouldn't act like it is. So, you know, I think it's different. I don't know if it's more or less effective, uh, except insofar as way more people are familiar now with these characters and stories and love them because of the movies. And that provides all kinds of of opportunities to bring along new audiences into social justice conversations.
0: One of the challenges that Fandom Forward has faced over the 18 plus years that we've been around is the problem of intellectual property and major corporations, again, our favorite things, trying to wrest control of the narrative back from fan interpreters, from fan fiction writers, and uh, from fandom generally. I would love to talk about that. What is Disney's role in managing all of this? Do you feel that comics have become less experimental just because they're owned by Disney? You know, they're sort of the number one thing because they're the number one property or the best-selling property in any given catalog of content.
2: There are a lot of creators out there who work within the mainstream comics field that would have a lot to say about that. And its IP has been great when the actual creators are the ones who are benefiting from what they've created. But in a lot of cases, we're seeing that's not the case. You know, it's sort of shocking how people who created characters, original storylines are really cut out of these giant corporate productions. So that's a shame. But I I would also say that so much of the good storytelling that we're seeing in comics today started from people who were at the margins. It's not an accident that a lot of the original creators of Marvel Comics, Stanley, Jack Kirby, and almost everyone in that bullpen were Jews. You know, this is right after World War II. They had a lot of family in Europe who had experienced what had happened. And, you know, were more keenly aware of a lot of social justice issues than than maybe other people. And that found its way into the stories. And they were very marginal at that time. Comics were marginal. As we've seen it become mainstream, there are, are certainly a lot more constraints and desire to protect you know, the value of properties, but there are still things coming from the margins. And I would always say, pay attention to those places, those little nooks and crannies, those fan subcultures, those new voices, because that's always where you're gonna find the most fertile things, most provocative things, most interesting stories being told. And I think there's more room for independently produced comics than ever before. There is a long, proud history, you know, from people making their own zines and putting them in your local comic book shop. But I think that that's still out there. And um, on our comic, just to be clear, is independently produced. At this point, we don't have a publisher, we put it out ourselves. And I just think that that's always going to be the most exciting stuff. So keep your eyes on the margins, because that's really going to be, I think, the future of storytelling.
1: You know, wh- one other thing I would say is that we have the collective ability to get our stories out there now that, you know, would have been unheard of even a few years ago. So as Gon mentioned, we created our comic book without A publisher. We were able to put it up on Amazon, up on issue, first in digital form, and it's coming in a few weeks in print form. And, you know, we have mass access. Lots of people are downloading it. We're getting great reviews. That was really not something that could have been done even a few years back. So there is that ability. It is simultaneously true that, you know, now I can have a conversation about Afrofuturism with tens of thousands uh, you know possibly millions of people because they've seen black panther on a mass scale around the world so both of those vehicles are important and you know disney's never going to push the envelope to the extent that many of us would like to see them It's also true that, you know, Disney is now a part of the culture wars, thanks to uh, DeSantis and company. And, you know, they're having to make decisions when you look at the content that they're creating. There are LGBTQ characters. There is Ms. Marvel, a Muslim woman or girl character. There are some really interesting things happening. And I think it's important that they're happening on a Disney vehicle and scale in addition to the other things that are happening more independently.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's a really nice gateway for people who have never read a comic book to to really get into comics and hopefully, and by the way, if you have any recommendations, obviously 1-6 being the, the number one, but if there are any other recommendations that you have of artists who are doing this work on the margins, I'd love to hear them.
1: Well, I I love the Saga series, which, you know, that's not going to be news to anyone who follows comic books or or graphic novels, but is just a a remarkable, human, funny series that is also about difference. It's at one level about a mixed marriage between two people from different planets, but it's also just fun and really funny.
2: I couldn't tell you what's happening a lot in mainstream comics right now, actually, but I will say that one of the thing, exciting things has been to watch how social movements themselves have really shaped what we're seeing in comics, I think. The Black Panther and, and a lot of these other Disney properties that we're seeing, I think that they're in part able to be produced because of what we've seen happening in social movement spaces. I think coming on the heels of Black Lives Matter, which one of its you know many demands was a call for more representation in mass media which really helped force open a lot of those doors. So, you know, I think there's ways we can shape the culture as consumers, but there's ways that we can shape the culture by taking action out in the real world. That will shape the culture, which in turn helps shape society at large. So, you know, be a great consumer of the things that you love, but also be a great citizen, be someone who's very active on the issues you care about, And you will see, you know, that is a heroic undertaking to to take on. And uh, you will see those heroic stories then reflected back in our culture. So, you know, this is for all of us to find that sort of inner superhero as we go out in the world because, you know, we're a reflection of our stories, but we're also the ones who create those stories for a future generation. So I really love what you're doing with Fandom Forward and helping find where that connection is between being a great fan, but also being you know a socially engaged person who's really trying to make a difference
1: in the world. Right on. And also to connect the dots back, we are working, Ghan and I are working with Western State Center, a fantastic social justice organization, to create an education and action guide that's going to accompany the print version of our the coming issues of our. Comic book, people can sign up at 16comics.com. So it's O-N-E-S-I-X comics.com to get updates, but also to get that action guide. And we're making a, a lot of copies available to social justice nonprofits so that they can use in organizing a bunch of copies of the comic book, and then the guide will be free for everyone who wants to use it. So hoping to connect back to that activism so that people who read the comic book, who are angry or afraid or or just you know activated can really immediately take action
0: right on earlier alan you mentioned something about dc versus marvel and the guidance you received from your brother about you know don't read dc read marvel as someone who is primarily a fan of the movies not so much the comics but is learning about the comics i have found that I don't see as much of a distinction between the two personally, so I am not going to take a side because I have seen amazing things in both media properties, but I'm wondering if DC versus Marvel still has that meaningful distinction to you in the era of superhero movies, because you both mentioned Marvel characters, but I also heard you drop a few names like Superman and Wonder Woman, so...
2: I actually worked on, my first graphic novel was called The Adventures of Unemployed Man. And it is a superhero parody of what would happen to superheroes during the economic crisis if they all lost their jobs. And really, again, evoking what it means for everyday people to have to fight against forces of incredible power, in this case, the economic system, but really how that's a heroic struggle. But the characters that we drew upon when we needed to find some sort of very optimistic message of sort of the can-do spirit of the New Deal and of the idea that we can create a better, more just society, we drew largely on DC characters. And I have to say that when you think about some of the things that have inspired us to reach our higher ideals as a society, you know, characters like Superman really embody that. Wonder Woman embodies that. And so those were the characters that we parodied because we were really trying to reconnect with some of those earlier, you know, Golden Age, Atomic Age characters that represented something classic, but also held a certain vision of a common good that we could all fight for together. And so I, as I got older, began to appreciate more a lot of the classic DC characters because I think... They represented an earlier time, but an ethos that there's a lot that we can still take inspiration from. And I had the pleasure of working with some of the great last remaining artists from those Golden and Atomic Age comics who were still alive. Number one was Ramona Fraden, who did a lot of work for DC and for Marvel, but did a wonderful character for us called Wonder Mother, who was basically Wonder Woman who had the dual challenge of also having to take care of her kids while, you know, fighting crime, you know, particular white collar crime by billionaires. And she just, you know, it it wasn't a, um, an attempt to imitate. It was the real deal. And there's just a certain warmth and I think a friendliness and optimism to a lot of those classic DC characters that I've really come to appreciate more over time. And I, I, I just think there's a beautiful and wonderful history there that shouldn't be overlooked, even as we have these sort of newer, grittier, sort of darker stories that that we like
1: to. So I'm going to enrage some percentage of your listeners, Sabrina, because I'm going to make the statement that the DC movies continually disappoint me. I, I want to love them. And I did love the first Wonder Woman movie, and I've written about that. I just think it was absolutely fantastic. And I enjoyed the Christopher Nolan, Batman movies, and actually the first Batman with with Michael Keaton, the I guess it was Tim Burton. but the the rest of them, I find disappointing, and it's in part it goes to what Gan has said, which is that those comic books from that those eras were so kind of inspiring and they were unique, right? They were telling those particular types of stories for the first time, and the the folks who make the d c superhero movies and they keep changing who makes them which i think is its own indication of how they feel about it they very rarely capture that spirit and again i think the first wonder woman movie really did and it's one of the reasons why it was so wonderful and people myself included found ourselves crying even including during the fight scenes in in that movie and you know batman who is no social justice superhero i think uh, you know was still The Nolan films really captured his badassery in a really good way, and I enjoyed them. I'm still hoping, I know there's another changing of the guard uh, of the DC films, and so I'm still hoping that they will find their center of gravity and be as innovative and dynamic and kind of true to their core brand as the, the Marvel films have been under Kevin Feige. We'll see.
0: Yeah, and I think that Wonder Woman is such an interesting franchise to talk about in this context because we waited nearly 40 years for them to take another chance on Wonder Woman and I really don't want to wait 40 more years for that. So I'm hoping that whatever the next iteration is, um, Wonder Woman still gets another chance to to inspire the way that, that Linda's portrayal did and, and that Gal's portrayal has as well. But, but no, that's, that's, it's okay to be a little bit provocative there. And hey, if you're a Marvel super fan, you're a Marvel Superman. This is an incredible conversation. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners before you go?
1: I, I would just say, you know, fandom rules and, and fandom forward has been such a, a leader in the space. I hope everybody who listens to the podcast will also take some action you know, utilizing the activating the fandom that they're a part of and working on the issues that they care about. It's something that all of us can do right away. It's perhaps the most accessible type of activism. And so, you know, I hope folks will bring it. As usual, I couldn't say it better than Alan. So I will just leave that there.
0: And where can we find you on the interwebs?
1: So I'm opportunity one on Twitter, my all of my Instagram posts are about gardening, so you know if you're into that, you can you can find me on Instagram. But our uh, graphic novels at 16comics.com, as I mentioned, and that's also our our identity on Instagram and Twitter is at one comics.
0: And Gan, where can we find you on the internet?
1: Uh, you can find me a little bit on social media.
2: Um, you can find me on Instagram, Gan Golan. That's G A N G O L A N. And, you know, there's links to my website and other work. But yeah, find us at 16comics.com.
0: Shireside Chats is an independent production of Fandom Forward. Executive produced by Brian Carton and hosted by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Tai and Jennifer Posner and, of course, our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening.